0: Why don't you all grab a seat? Grab a seat. Good to see you. Good to see you. Hey, um, if you guys don't have Bibles, why don't you raise your hand and uh, we'll get you a Bible. And if you do have a Bible, why don't you either open up to it or turn on to it. Um, Daniel chapter three is where we're at here this morning. We've been in a a series going through the book of Daniel, verse by verse, chapter by chapter throughout this summer. Um, This is a Third chapter that we've been in this and uh, making our way through it. Um, Really, we've been looking at what it looks like to live faithfully to God in the midst of a context that may be hostile to God or might be completely contradictory to the ways of God. That's kind of where the story of Daniel takes place. So what I want to do right now is I want to pray, and then I'll give you a little bit of a context or background, and then we'll read kind of a lengthy passage of scripture this morning, about 23 or so verses of Daniel chapter 3. It's a, a famous story, which I'll tell you about in two seconds, but let me pray, and then we'll get to work. God, we just give you thanks for this morning. We thank you that you love us, that we're here this morning in spite of us, you love us. God, thank you that this is the one, one spot, one place, really, God, that we can know that we can gather on a regular basis. That we don't have to put up some form of performance. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to act like everything is okay when it's just not. We don't have to. We don't have to pretend to be something that we're not. God, we thank you that you accept us. You love us for who we are, and that we are in you complete. Uh, we in you, we have a place that we can simply call home. Thank you for all of that. So we commit this morning in your hands, I pray that you'd help me, even now, to just be faithful, to convey and communicate the things that are on your heart, that are in your words, and give us, God, the, collectively, the ability to have hearts that are like soil that are able to receive uh, the seed of your word, and that it would bring forth fruit in our lives. And so we commit all things in your hands, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. So we're going to be looking at a story here today that um, I, my guess would be that if you're, even, if we, even if you're not familiar with the Bible or even if you don't really have much of a religious background, Christian background, or you're straight up irreligious or just straight up atheist, glad you're all here. But the point of the matter is uh, you're probably familiar with this story. It's the story of Daniel, uh, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they get tossed into a fiery furnace, right? How many of you guys are familiar with that story right? or some version of it that might involve um, talking vegetables? Right? All right? Yeah, yeah, God help us. Um, but the point is, what I want to do is I want to look at that, that passage of story with, with a new lens, because in reality, um, I think that's one of those stories that has been, uh, in my opinion, grossly domesticated and reduced from its, like, massive implications. In fact, I would even go so far as to say is that this literature of Daniel chapter 3 is deeply, deeply subversive, um, and it's intended to be so. It's intended for us to take a look at... Um, Just the bigger picture of what's happening in the book of Daniel, but not only in the book of Daniel, but in the world with regard to uh, militaristic world superpowers that oftentimes use their energy and their ability and their level of like uh, responsibility to uh, oppress other people. And the bigger question is, how are God's people to be faithful to God, even in the midst of a context that's deeply hostile or aggressive or very anti uh, the ways ways of God? So that's what we'll be taking a look at. And Before we jump in and begin to read, um, like I said, we have a kind of a lengthy uh, section which we're going to be reading here this morning. Um, But what I wanted to talk about real quickly, just allow me just about three minutes to nerd out on you guys with just a little bit of a background or backstory in terms of culture at large. I think it will be helpful as we kind of play into the bigger picture of the story of Daniel, how it all kind of connects. So what I mean by this is that, Western culture, maybe you are aware of this, maybe from a sociological perspective you've kind of been reading about this, but my, my guess is that many of us, um, it's kind of like the frog in the pot scenario where we had not really been aware of the fact that something has shifted, something has changed. Um, over the past 50 years, in particular in the West, in particular perhaps even in America specifically, um, there has been a shift, it's, it's a seismic shift, a radical shift um, in the, in, with regard to Christianity. Um, what I want to quote on a cup or make reference to is there's a guy named john tyson he 's a pastor out of a church in um, new york city he 's kind of discipled by just the guy that a couple of people might know of. His name is Tim Keller. And uh, he uh, has basically drawn together some thoughts and conclusions or ideas with regard to Christianity. Um, so just follow along with me real quick. And again, I think this will all kind of play into a bigger storyline that will hopefully make sense to you. So he describes just three major cultural shifts that have affected Christians in the West. And then he kind of describes it like this. Number one, Christianity has kind of moved from the center onto the fringe. And what I mean by this, and what I think he means by this, is that for some people, they would argue, and though I would deeply, strongly argue against it, that, Christi, that, that America, some would say, was a Christian nation. I would strongly oppose that. I would say, no, Christian, America was never a Christian nation. You can't have a Christian nation. You can have Christians, people, living in a nation, which is you know a, a body, a collection of people. What I would argue for, however, is that America has been influenced deeply influenced in its foundational documents and ideas and concepts from a Judeo-Christian perspective. That's how I would describe it. So in other words, a Judeo-Christian worldview had deeply influenced, for the most part, um, much of the original documents. Again, you can argue there's a lot of things that the foundation of this nation needs to look at and reconsider and so on. But the point that that I would make is this, is that Christianity was sort of woven into the fabric of the nation for the most part. And now that kind of brings us up over to the past 50 or plus years, that Christianity has kind of been on this migration from the center where it was part of, it, it, it did definitely without question, uh, Christians in America and Christianity in specific um, did experience some degree of, of uh, privilege in America to be able to help shape culture and ideas and concepts and laws and so on and so forth, um, morality and whatnot. But what has happened over the, at least the past 50 years, it's been being shoved off from the center off to the fringe. Um, secondly, he describes it like this as well: from the majority to a minority. So, where Christianity at one point may have experienced kind of, you know, you can like, I don't know, 1950s, you know, 19 uh, late 50s, wherever you can go around and be like, "Who's all Christian?" You know, you probably have the entire city You'd be like, "We're all Christians." And now again, genuine Christian or just cultural Christian? That's I would strongly make a distinction there as well. Um, that I would argue that for the most part is more cultural Christian whereas the actual apprenticeship to Jesus was, was strongly lacking in American authentic Christianity. But I would, I would just nonetheless make the point that, for the most part, at one point, Christianity experienced sort of a, a majority position and role within America. Now that's kind of shrinking to more of a minority uh, part. Uh, thirdly, he also makes his observation that it went from being this respected community or deeply respected community to a disrespected community. And again, um, I, you know, I, I would just simply turn to the, the cultural prophet, um, uh, Bart Simpson, to just um, look at how he would. Um, and again, I, I honestly mean that. Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not joking. Like, if you want to understand how people view culture, go to the uh, comedians. Uh, comedians have a prophetic voice. They're not necessarily interested in changing things. They don't necessarily present for us a, a way forward, uh, per se, though George Carlin may have once in a while, but for the most part, they were really good at critiquing culture. They were really good at being able to say, here's, here's what's screwed up about society, and here's what's messed up. And so uh, uh, you can look at Simpsons and realize that, that Christians um, do not have a very highly respected role within um, that, that series. And again, you can argue, perhaps for some really good reasons, because of some of the postures, maybe, um, that were kind of adopted, that were uh, egocentric or... Um, oppressive or hurtful or um, caustic and whatnot. But the point that I'd make is, again, this is, so if you don't agree with this, that's fine. You can disagree with John Tyson. I'm just simply telling you his stuff. So, But this is his observation. From center of the fringe, majority of the uh, minority, respected to disrespected. And I think what this does, especially when we jump into chapter 3, there's a couple questions that I think the text um, will force us to consider, to think about. Here's two questions. Number one, um, how do you know when a nation has become drunk on its own power? Because that's, for the most part, what uh, Daniel chapter 3 is all about, is we're going to see that um, we're introduced to this guy named Nebuchadnezzar, though he was already introduced to us prior, um, but he becomes sort of a, a key figure in Daniel chapter 3 and the three other guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they basically are, are, are asked and forced to worship this, this idol. And, and the idol, what we're going to discuss, Discover is actually an embodiment of the ideals of Babylon, all right? So you guys following? So an idol um, or a statue, if you want to think of it this way, embodies something. So let me give you an example. Statue of Liberty. No one's asking anybody to worship Statue of Liberty, but the Statue of Liberty embodies something. What does it embody? Freedom, right? It's a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. Yeah, it's not a trick question. It's a good thing, right? But the point of the matter is, is that it embodies something. Uh, this statue embodies something. Uh, that we're going to read about, it actually embodies all that Babylon stands for. And who's at the top of the Babylon, Babylonian food chain uh, is this dude named Nebuchadnezzar. And um, so what we're going to find is that even though there's great things about Babylon, for the most part, Babylon is a community that moves in, in deep fear and death. In other words, you can put it this way, Babylon, Babylon with its chief head Uh, represented by the idol, is is literally drunk on its power. How do we know when a world superpower or power, it doesn't even have to be a world superpower, but just a superpower, is drunk on its own power? There's at least two things that you can identify. Number one, it exalts itself with images and then demands devotion. It exalts itself with images and demands devotion. And again, you can look at this throughout history, again, just observation. Um, You can think, obviously, uh, during the 40s, uh, 30s, uh, the Third Reich. Was sort of this elevation of uh, not just Adolf Hitler, but also what he promoted, which was National Socialism or Nazism. Um, and he had his community, people called like Hitler Youth that were part of this this forward movement. The idea, believe it or not, was actually to create a a, a kingdom, a kingdom, Third Reich. That's what it literally means, the Third Reich. In fact, um, I have this great book. It's it's called uh, Preaching Under Hitler's Shadow, and it was a, it's a series or a collection of sermons by pastors. Uh, faithfully committed to the gospel in Hitler's Germany. And it's it's fascinating because they actually, they preach the Reich of God. Whoa, yeah, let that sink in. Not the Reich of Hitler, the Reich of God. Like, imagine preaching that message in, you know, just down the street is, you know, an SS-held, you know, area. But the point of the matter is, is when, when a nation is drunk on its own power, it oftentimes will exalt itself. That's what we see with Babylon. That's what we see with, with ISIS. ISIS had done that. And again, those are not the only examples you can think of, multiple ones, been, and hopefully you'll begin to think about that. But the, another thing is that it dehumanizes. The second thing is that it dehumanizes those that do not fit into its narrative um, and ult- ultimately makes them dispendable. Um, in other words, if you are part of a collective kingdom that's drunk on its own power, if you don't fit into that narrative, you're ousted, you're, you're thrown off to the margins, you're chewed up, you become dispendable. Again, most obvious example of that is within Hitler's um, arena. Just a few more minutes, guys, and we'll just jump right in, so hopefully it's not boring you. But the point of the matter is is um, when you look at Hitler's uh, Hitler's world, um, Jews did not fit into the narrative. They Because many of them had their own narrative, the, the narrative of God, and so they just didn't fit into that. And so they're relegated, pushed off to the margins, and we see the atrocities that were committed during... Um, Third Third Reich, World War II, and so on. Um, And they just become, and again, if you want to compare this to Jesus, um, world empires versus the kingdom of God, uh, we see that Jesus actually goes out of his way to welcome people that are cast off in the margins. In fact, I'll kind of try to shape this a little bit more next week. Um, and this, this might be biting off a little bit more than, than what you were ready to chew on. But I'm going to throw something out, and next week maybe I'll kind of reinforce it a little bit further. But I, I've kind of been forming this idea, this opinion, again, this just kind of my opinion. It's not necessarily Bible, but it's my opinion that, that God actually, in the biblical narrative, stands opposed to empire. Jesus loves the world. God loves people. God loves ethnicities, nations. But he stands opposed to empire. So the question is, what, what is an empire? An empire is when somebody or person or collective ideals elevates itself above God and says, we will rule and reign and we will demonstrate power and authority over a community of people um, in and according to our own idealized fashion, independent from God. And what happens when you get that, you always get the same thing, oppression. You always get the same thing. Marginalization. You always get people crushing, somebody who's on top, crushing those that are that are on the bottom. And again, what's fascinating when you compare that to the life of Jesus? Jesus represents the true king of all kings, comes into this world, and where does he go spend the majority of his time? With those that are outcast. Those that have been forgotten, those that, that are Jesus literally is overturning the tables uh, to bring those that have been crushed and ground by Empire. Empire of Caiaphas, right? Uh, the Jewish Uh, ideology that was crushing and destructive that ultimately would have been part of the whole process of putting Jesus to death, and uh, Caesar and the Roman Empire that ultimately, again, would be uh, responsible for putting Jesus to death as well. So the point that I'd make is this, is that how do you know when a nation has become drunk on its own power? Number one, it exalts itself. Number two, it dehumanizes those that don't fit into its narrative. So then this leads to the second question, and we're going to just jump into the text here in a second. Um, How are those ultimately uh, who hope to live faithful to God navigate this landscape. So let's just say, for example, you are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, one of the guys that are with him, with these guys, and you really want to live faithful to Yahweh in spite of living in Babylon's land, right? You live on their territory, on their turf, in their neighborhood, according to their rules for the most part. How do you live faithful to Yahweh in spite of a deeply hostile narrative that's being forced upon you, and it's trying to scrub your identity, erase your identity, and give, it, give way to something else. And that's what we're going to see about in the story here. So hopefully this all makes sense. So with that, I want to uh, just jump right in. We'll take a look at the next slide, which is uh, just a paradigm that we've been thinking about over the past few uh, weeks, is that there's basically three different ways. Uh, the first way, second way, are most obvious. And then the third way is we're just simply describing as exile. So the first way that oftentimes I think people either uh, slide into one of these two categories. One, we would describe as separatism, and this is when somebody views the host culture in which they live in as being hostile or broken or messed up or sinful or defiled, whatever. And so the tendency is to isolate or withdraw or to adopt a posture of deep, deep criticalness. Um, um, And then this is oftentimes moved and motivated by fear. Uh, Fear, by the way, oftentimes is like the flip side of the coin to control, Right? So people that are oftentimes deeply controlling, the underbelly of that is you are deeply afraid. You're afraid, that's why you're controlling. You're afraid of losing territory, losing ground. You're afraid of your life spiraling out of control, so you double back by becoming deeply, deeply controlling. Um, and this is what separatism oftentimes can do. Secondly is uh, syncretism. This is wholly and or uncritically embracing the ways of the host culture. Um, this is what we've decided and described over the past few weeks. This is the, I think this is the number one problem. If you are a follower of Jesus, listen right now. This is the number one problem you face. I, my guess is that most of you in here are not going to go the way of separatism. You're not going to go find a farm, raise your own pit bulls, and churn your own butter, and do your own homeschooling program, and create your own Christian label. And you know, your own, You're not going to do that type of stuff. You might, but uh, the, the, it's going to be in a minority. Majority of us in this room right now, as a follower of Jesus might be more tempted to follow more of a syncretistic type of way, which means you adopt the po- posture of the host culture. In other words, there's not a whole lot of distinguishing between you and the rest of the world ar- around you, not much. Because when you all go to the bar, you drink just as much as they all drink. When you're you know, by the water cooler, you all share the exact same nasty jokes that are you know, offensive and hurtful and crude, and you, you just participate. And all the same things that the rest of the culture around you participates in. There's no distinguishing between you and someone that is, that is not a follower of, of God. And so um, I would suggest the thir- this, this uh, the danger of syncretism is compromise. We, we compromise our testimony. Uh, we end up giving ground, giving territory of our lives away that Jesus purchased, that because he loves us, gave himself for us. We end up becoming just like the host culture around us. Um, the third way, as I would suggest, that we've been looking at, again, more extensively just in reading through this, is, is exile. What I would say is that this is living with the host culture, serving those present, longing for another kingdom. So did you get that? You, you live in Babylon. You don't become Babylonian. You serve the Babylonians. While at the same time, you're motivated, deeply motivated, and moved by this hope of a future kingdom coming. That's what it means to live in exile. That's what it means to be a Christian, to, to live in this tension between separatism and syncretism. Um, you guys get the idea. So with that, what I want to do right now is I want to jump right into the story. We will read um, this whole passage. I'll, I'll read through it. I'll make a couple comments, and I'll finish with some concluding thoughts, and then, uh, then we'll be done. So with that, I want to jump right in. Uh, Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. whose height was 60 cubits, and breadth, 6 cubits. It's kind of funny, actually, because uh, this is supposed to be a translation, and it uses the word cubits. How many of you guys work in cubits? So I thought. Like, nobody. Um, so most would, would see this as being like a 90-foot tall image. Very very large. Just imagine a, a large, large golden image. Um, and then he said he set it up on or in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The king... Uh, then the king Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and the officials in the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So that the, the list of names of these important people um, is going to get repeated a couple different times. The writer who's, who's telling us the story here, without question, loves lists because there's a, several different types of lists that are going to kind of reoccur within the storyline. You'll see this. Um, But this is another way of basically saying everybody who's everybody, everybody who had some sort of role that was on the king's payroll is part of this whole shindig. Uh, Verse 3 says, uh, Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices and magistrates and the officials in the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image of Nebuchadnezzar that he had set up. Next. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and then worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Which is kind of a funny way to describe this, a redundancy, right? Burning, fiery furnace. You get the idea that just fiery furnace alone would be enough to just indicate this place is probably pretty hot and it's probably the place you want to go hang out. Um, so, you know, for them, they're not going to be singing songs like, Lord, set me on fire and, you know, let my heart blaze for you, like, like cheesy Christian like, language like that, because to them it has a literalness to it. But, anyways, cheesy joke. Uh, let's keep going on. Um, verse 7, it says, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the dragon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations' languages fell down and they worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, next slide. Well, I'm going to circle back and uh, make a couple quick comments, and we'll keep on reading this. Um, So, so far what we have is a king who sets up an image and says that this image embodies and represents all that Babylon the great is, and we demand you worship this image. This is an interesting phrase to describe image. Uh, It's a Hebrew word, uh, selim, um, that actually the idea of of an image should immediately, to perceptive readers of the Bible, become like a hyperlink. So here's the question I'll, I'll pose for you. Where else in the Bible do we see uh, one image being set up to be representative of something else? Where where's, where's all that begun? with that language come, or point to? Where? Genesis. Genesis 1. Genesis 1, very beginning, page 1 of the Bible. Um, you have an image, you have a picture, I should say, a God who speaks, creates human beings in his likeness, in his image, in his cellum, God actually sets an image of himself in the garden. And he says, this image is to worship me. So you kind of have a strange perversion of this. You have Nebuchadnezzar saying, I'm going to create an image of myself or of all Babylon represents. And everybody's going to worship it. So you have a a gross perversion happening here in the storyline. And again, this is going to begin to answer the question for us. What happens when human beings who are made in the likeness and image of God begin to pervert that image and begin to make demands upon other people to conform their lives with their best understanding of power and authority and wisdom? What you have is Babylon. What you have is oppression. Um, God, as he created human beings, he says, "You, you bear my image and you will need my wisdom, however, to live off of. What Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I'm God, I have the wisdom, I will determine what's right or what's wrong. Those who you know, do what I tell them, they will live and they will have you know, a good life. Those that do not will be cast into the fiery furnace. So with that being said, verse 12, or sorry, we'll just uh, jump at the beginning. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, they came forward, maliciously accused the Jews. So at this point right now, we know obviously something uh, has happened in the text that these Chaldeans, these were the other dream uh, interpreters that were, that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, were all part of. Oh, by the way, some of you might be wondering, where's, where's Daniel in this story? Um, that oftentimes becomes subject matter, like, where's Daniel? How come Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in here, but where's Daniel? I don't know. So there you go. There's, there's, there's my answer. I have no idea. Nobody seems to have a good answer to that, so I'm not going to even go down that rabbit trail. Um, but he 's not obviously in the story, but um, what we have are these Chaldeans. This is actually fascinating because if you look at the end of chapter two, um, you read that these Chaldeans they were about to die, right and there was, there was somebody that stood up and said hey don't don 't kill them. remember who that was? That was Daniel Daniel, right He, he puts his neck on a line he 's like, "Hey, I know the interpretation of your king, your dream king, and uh, by the way, could you make sure that you don 't kill the chaldeans and so They don't kill the Chaldeans, and then Daniel and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get elevated to these high degrees of positions. Um, There's all this speculation. Again, that's all it is, speculation. Some suspect that maybe these Chaldeans were jealous because these Jewish exiles were given high-ranking positions in the king's empire. We don't really know for sure. But what we do know is what the text tells us, and the text tells us that they came forward and they maliciously accused the Jews. The word maliciously in the Hebrew literally means to eviscerate. Um, meat. It's the image of a, of a wild, you know, cat or predator, right? Wild lion just eviscerating its its prey. That's what these guys are doing. They're like with their words just tearing them to pieces. And they're, they're out for blood. And then it says, and then they declared to the king, O king, live forever. Um, you, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears uh, the sound, here we go, of the... Uh, the list again, and I'll uh, just say the musical instruments. We'll keep going on. Verse 11. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning furnace. Um, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So pause real quick and just think about this. There's three accusations they make against them. Number one, they say they pay no attention to you, king. Um, they do not worship your gods, and they will not bow down to this image. Is that entirely true? It's two-thirds true, right? These guys are faithful servants to the king. Again, um, it's interesting in chapter 3 that these guys uh, repeatedly, at least 11 between 11 to 13 times, their names, you notice I actually um, emboldened their names in the text just so you can see how often their names are repeated. At least between 11 to 13 times their names are repeated. Um, and guess what? Never once are their names repeated their Hebrew names. These are, their, these are their Babylonian names. So what's going on? Um, I, I think probably what's happening here is this is a way of basically saying these guys are, these guys are faithful Babylon Babylonians. They're, though they're distinct from Babylonians. So they're serving the king. However, there are two things that obviously they are without question guilty of. Uh, so says that they don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So I think those last two are obviously true. Next slide. How are we all doing? You guys doing okay? All right. Uh, then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, he commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Is it true, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, dragon, harp, bagpipe, every other kind of music, and fall down and worship this image that I have made, well and good. All right. But if you do not, worship you shall immediately be cast into the burning fires a uh, fiery furnace burning fiery furnace and all and who is the god who will deliver you out of my hands do, do you hear what he's saying he's saying i'm god no one's greater than me and this is my demand of you i demand utter absolute complete loyalty to me and what i represent and to the image that represents me and what i represent the kingdom this is like nationalism gone like way way south, all right this is this is this is literally what happens when you deify when you lev- when you raise to the degree of worship and honor something that is man made or I should say either man made or, or god made that it becomes destructive and oppressive it becomes something that makes demands upon people, and when those demands are not met, um, death is what's issued. And that's exactly what we see going on here. That the king is like, hey, who's going to deliver you? No one's going to deliver you. Because I am the only one that has the authority of life or death. And you got, you got to love the tension that's going on here because the way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond is, is phenomenal. Listen to as It goes on in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered and they said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom you serve, whom we serve, uh, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O oh King. But if not, be it known to you, O oh King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Uh, a couple things that I, that I noticed about this, just real quickly. Number one is that they're so nice. I mean, do you, you notice that they're so nice? They're just like, O oh King, we don't have anything to say. We're not going to deny this, and we're not going to defend ourselves. Like, like, what do we got to defend? And what do we got to deny? Like, yes, we, we did not bow down. We're not going to deny that. We're not going to like fabricate a story like, no, no, that was a total mistake. Like, yeah, yeah, it all happened. And you don't need to like bring out the whole harp and the whole like shindig over again because even if they start playing again, we're, we're still not going to do it. But you got to love this because there's something about the response. It's just like, you know, we know who we are. We know to whom we belong. And we know that God will, will take care of us no matter what. So let's just keep reading and we'll, we'll finish up with some thoughts. Then it says, and then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. An expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and a minute ago. Uh, I another interesting wordplay here. Um, The image, the image, literally the the Hebrew is the image of Nebuchadnezzar's face morphed. (laughs) It went from being this like, like, like I'm powerful to like, oh, I can't even control myself. Have you ever seen anybody like that? Sometimes I have to shave that guy like every day or every once a week. I don't shave every day. But you get the idea. Like, sometimes i got to shave this guy. And that, that The image of, of that face can change where uh, anger or frustration, whatever it is, just takes a hold of you. Um, it, it begins to manage you, master you, uh, rather than you having mastery over it. This is what happens with uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he says, and he ordered that the furnace be heated seven times more than it usually was heated. And he ordered some of the men, mighty men of the army, to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them in the burning, fiery furnace. Uh, then these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats and their garments. Again, then we go back to some lists, and they're thrown in the burning fire furnace because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace was overheated. The flame and the fire killed those that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's so funny, like reading this. Like, what? Why add the names again? You know, it's just like, these three men. But again, the, the, and the author has a reason. Wants to keep the names in front of us. These are these are faithful to Yahweh. Uh, they fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Um, next week we'll look at the rest of the chapter, and honestly, like don't don't miss next week. It's gonna—I kind of, I, just the text alone itself is so good. Um, like I, you know, anybody can preach it, but it's just—it's just such a good, good passage. Don't miss it. So what I want to do right now is I want to just finish with some thoughts because with regard to these guys, what we notice about them is that they are deeply faithful and loyal to Yahweh, no matter what. They're not worshipers of the state. They're not bowing the knee to whoever's in charge. They are devoted to Yahweh, unquestionably devoted, to the point of saying, if need be, you can throw us in the fire. We'll die. We will die for our God. Um, this is an amazing story. And I want to finish with some three thoughts that I have about this. Number one that I think about with regard to these guys and living faithfully before God involves number one conviction. The, these guys had a deep, deep conviction, not just any conviction, but a deeply rooted conviction in who they were and to whom they belonged. Um, you could say that these guys knew that they were Exodus people. They're part of this family lineage that is part of the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, They're part of those that were brought out of Egypt that's who they were. That's what their nature was. They had a place of belonging, in other words. And what's amazing about this, not only did they know where they came from, that shaped their present, like who they were now, but it also shaped their future. Did you get that? They even said that within the whole narrative when they're looking at the king. They're like, look, you can kill us. And either way, we're going to be delivered from your hand. Even if God takes us out of the fire, is with us through the fire, we will be delivered from your hand or... If God takes us, we'll be still delivered. They had this hope of a future. Um, I'll just read this and I'll make a couple comments, and we'll move on to the next one. Um, it says, "Our lives." This is something I had written, um, and I realized that the word to is is wrong. And I'm gonna, I'm actually blaming autocorrect on this because I actually spelled it right the first time, and then it forced me to correct it to this. So I'm innocent. I'm a victim here. So um, <laughs> our lives belong to the story that God is unfolding. Um, he's the ultimately the central hero. Of receiving his truth. Freeze us, frees me, from the exhausting activity of having to, quote unquote, find my own way, figure out which quote unquote authentic self I should be living into, and ultimately from the endless needs to please others. Uh, the, you know, constantly, that's exhausting when you live within this narrative. Uh, these Hebrew exiles, they knew their place, ultimately their identity. They were as exodus people, um, not as not and not Babylonians, even though this is where they lived. Even though they lived in Babylon, they recognized we do not. Uh, allow or let Babylon have its power over us. We are, we're Exodus people. We belong to Yahweh. Um, I want to suggest something to you, that in our culture, again, part of that whole reshaping of the framework of the past 50-plus years, maybe even a little bit longer, what's been taking place is, um, again, w- once I'm going to say this, you might not be able to unsee this, but what's happened within our culture, by and large, is anything that, that has any degree of, um, um, how would I describe it, um, History, back to a, a place of origin, or, um, or or like a like a system, or like a like an organization. Um, we are living in a culture right now that is is consistently seen uh, all of these things, whether it be tradition or whatever, as basically being oppressive. Whether that be um, the the patriarchy, like uh, a, a man. Um, um, over leading over a na- uh, his family, or whether that be even a, a nation ruling, or whether that be um, um, even churches. Uh, we see that happening within Hollywood with the Me Too movement, which is the idea of bringing down the oppressive institution. And now again, is there anything wrong with pointing out what's wrong with institutions? A- absolutely not. In fact, I would I would agree and say, this is actually an amazing moment in today's world to recognize and to be empowered if you are or have been a part of an oppressed people group that has uh, been under the thumb or the oppression of another group. Um, and what's happened, I think, is there has been this massive movement of to just deconstruct anything, whether it's Hollywood or the church or the government or the left or the right or uh, conservatives, conservatism or liberalism, or whatever, uh, to just deconstruct anything. Now, again, I would suggest This is not necessarily a bad thing, as long as there is a schematic to rebuild. But what's happened for the most part, there's not been a schematic to rebuild. Because what what that means is for the most part, someone else is going to come into place and create a schematic. And all you have is just a brand new system of oppression that's beginning to take its place. Because what's happened for the most part, at least over the past 50 plus years, is in this massive deconstruction movement is a landscape that is devoid of any system, or structure, or, or organization. And who is left to fill in the order in those, moment, in those gaps? Um, you, as an individual. But again, we've, we've been saying this all along. You and I do not think alone. We don't think independently. We, you really don't have that much of an independent thought. That might come as a shock. That might even be offensive to you. But we are shaped by our culture. By the news media, by our friend group, by the internet, by Facebook, by social media. We are shaped. We are shaped by our desires. And I would suggest to you that what has happened in this void of deconstruction is a vacuum that needs to be filled, and in its place is just being filled with a whole new series of oppressive systems and organizations and ideas and ideologies that will one day run Their course and leave people broken once again. And what I would suggest to you, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego—they knew what story they came from. They received this story from God as a gift. They didn't deserve it. They were the outcasts. They were the outsider. They were people that were subjected to you know world militaristic superpower, aka you know known as uh, Egyptians. And God rescued them and made them His own. And now they live in a narrative that they don't deserve, they don't necessarily belong on their own, but Jesus, by, but God, by his grace, has invited them and given them a place at the table. So, first of all, they had this deep-rooted conviction. Again, like I said, in our culture, we have a community-wide problem, maybe even a worldwide problem, of people that are living amidst the ranks of deconstruction, but all that's done is created a society of uprooted and detached people who are trying to make sense of what can only be described as a free fall. That's extremely disorienting because we as human beings cannot live in that place for very long without wanting to just tap out and give up. And what i suggest to you is that life in exile could actually offer a different way, a third way, one which gives us an identity that is our own. It's a gift from God that we can live into and have an entirely different way of being human in the midst of that. Secondly, as I see is confession. Daniel chapter 3, verse 18, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So These guys had this resolve, like this confession. They were able to just simply say, look, uh, we will not do this because we belong. Again, this is kind of tied into their conviction. They knew who they were because they knew who they were. Uh, they they knew. It's like, it's off limits for us to bend our knee or to give our devotion or our worship to any other god or any other deity or any other king that represents any other god or any other deity or any other nation that represents a king that represents a deity. You get the idea over here, right? But like, we won't do it because we belong to, to Yahweh. And then finally, that leads to the confrontation that we see kind of twofold ways in which this happens, this unfolds. Number one, we see in verses 8 and 12 this peaceful non-participation. Big word, but peaceful non-participation. Uh, what we don't see, first of all, is we don't see them with billboards or placards or banners or bullhorns going out and shouting, you know, curses. We don't see Daniel or his three buddies or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing before you know, Nebuchadnezzar saying, you are going to hell, you fool, you know. Like, none of this. But what we do see is just, first of all, peaceful non-participation. Um, and again, you, you would miss this. You wouldn't even know this is happening unless these uh, three, or these other guys, these uh, um, other Chaldeans, there you go, thank you, um, step in and they basically fill in the blank for us. So take a look at verse 8. The Chaldeans, they came forward and they maliciously accused the Jews. Verse 12, saying, oh king, they pay no attention to you, they don't give, they don't serve your gods, worship, so on and so forth. So um, what, we, what we see is that they're just casually, Standing aside. Again, they're not giving any uh, tribute to, hey, we are peacefully, you know, participating. They're, they're just doing it. They're just by way of omission, right? We live in this world that because we have things like social media, we feel the need to just go on there and just blast everybody. Like, can I, can I just offer a different way? If you're a Christian, please, A, if, if, if that's you, just, just take a break from it. I mean, I'm going to try to say this as nicely and as kind of as I can. Just take a break from social media, Honestly, you may need to just pull back, back just take a, a week off, maybe two days to just start with. Uh, when you start to Jones, you're like, I need, I need. Like, that might be a good indication that you just, you, it's an addiction. And you may need to step back and rethink Pray in its place. Read a good book. Pick up Eugene Peterson. Read him. Read your Bible. Read the story of Daniel. Just invest your heart in reconstructing a new narrative that looks. Read the Sermon on the Mount. How about that? Uh, there you go. I'm 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 a verbal processor. Right now I'm verbal processing. So um, so just bear with me. Erase what I just said. Uh, so take a day or two. Pull back and then just read the Sermon on the Mount. Pray and then day two pray the Sermon on the Mount. Like honestly, Jesus. Make this me. And then, day three, maybe re-engage Facebook, social media, whatever. Um, but we, we live in this world that we feel this need. We have to just get our ideas, our thoughts, our opinions out there. It becomes this massive echo chamber. So you have these people that congratulate you. they are so amazing. And then you have others that are just like, and it's almost like we live for that, like, sparks. And I would suggest, if you're a follower of Jesus, that, that, man, the emphasis is off there somewhere. Like, bring it back to the Sermon on the Mount, bring it back to Jesus. I would even go so far as to say I think Jesus is inviting you to bring it back, bring it back to a different posture. Um, So first of all, we see this peaceful non-participation. Secondly, uh, we see this degree of resistance. Uh, If peaceful non-participation is not effective, um, which obviously, you know, it it got them in trouble, uh, then led to this confrontation, this resistance. Uh, take a look at how their resistance happens. and it shakes down. Verse 16 and 18. It's to Shadrach, a minute ago. they said to the king, but Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you of this matter. If this be so, then God, whom we serve, and we've all read this. But the, you get the idea. They, in this confrontation, they're not yelling curses at him. They're not consigning him to hell. They're not doing anything other than just being, like, overtly polite. Right? I mean, it's just like, imagine your king, Nebuchadnezzar. You're like, oh, my gosh, you guys are so polite. I'm kind of bummed I have to kill you. But, but but you violated, like, my decree. My decree states, you know, everybody worships the image that represents me, that represents the kingdom and the empire that I'm building based upon my understanding of right and wrong, and you violate it, and I can kill you. Um, but that's, that was their resistance. And their resistance was this deep sense of, like, we, we know that God will step in somehow, some way, some way. He'll take care of us. So I want to close with um, a, a quote. Um, in an image. Um, so 2014, um, ISIS, I, I remember driving and just watching these images of, of ISIS sweep the Middle East. Um, and that, this, is, this is our closest thing to Nazi Germany, I think, where you have a totalitarian organization that sees itself and its ideas on par with God and demands to be worshipped and identify and recognized. And what has happened, what happened throughout ISIS is it invaded all these territories and, and places where Christians had lived for 2,000 years were completely eradicated and removed and uh, sites that had, you know, um, you, I'm sure you all saw the images. But this image to me stood out as one of the most profound ones because this is the image of, these are your, your brothers. I don't know if you knew this, but these are your, your Christian brothers um, of the Coptic church in Egypt, and they refused to bend their knee to Allah and they were told that if you do not worship Allah and serve him and serve uh, the, the leader of our whole regime, um, you will lose your head. And they vowed that we will not worship and serve any other god other than uh, Jesus. These guys were taken out to the beach and, and literally beheaded. And it was videoed um, for the world to see. And I don't know if you saw the video, I, I unfortunately... Um, I saw a portion of it, and I cannot unsee that. And that's part of the reason for this, is um, these are my brothers in in Christ. That would not bend their knee. But it reminded me of uh, people that have sought to be faithful, because it's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it's also tied into a statement that John Wesley, if you're familiar with him, is an American preacher that went around preaching to hundreds, if not thousands of people in America, as well as Britain, he said this, give me a 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set the kingdom of, of heaven on earth. And this is, this is what and how Christianity has advanced. Um, it's not conventional, by the way. But this is how it works. Evil is conquered, not by way of the instruments of evil, Resistance is not by picking up a sword or a gun or strapping a bomb to your waist and going into a populated area and say, this is for Jesus. It's not how it works. It looks like being able to lay one's life down. Paul actually writes about this and I'm done. Is he envisioning the image of God? In, I think it's the book of Colossians, he says, Jesus is the image of God. He is the perfect embodiment of that, and that Jesus conquered the principalities and powers, language of confrontation, right? I don't know how else you're going to think about the word conquering. It involves confrontation. How did Jesus confront the forces of darkness? By letting the forces of darkness and evil, that were embodied, by the way. They were embodied by Rome, and they were embodied by Caiaphas. He unmasked them. He revealed them for what they truly were. Gross misrepresentations of Yahweh. Failed, flawed groups that could not rightly bring life into this world. He allows their death and destruction to do to him what they do to all of us, nonstop. And he allows it to take them all the way to the grave. But we know the story is that he overcomes the grave. He rises again from the dead. And then he invites us into that way of life. That's why I look at this picture, and as incredibly grief-causing it is for me, I also know these guys, the moment they walked into paradise, the story of the book of Revelation became utterly real to them, where it says, and every tear will be wiped from your eye. Every bit of grief and sorrow, these guys had endured every bit of grief and sorrow they felt, thinking about their daughter that they weren't going to be able to marry off before their future husband or grandkids they weren't able to raise or see or play with, they knew the face of Jesus was going to greet them, give them a future and a hope. That's what it means to live in the story of God. Apart from that story, we're left to devise our own stories, which is constantly bring chaos, confusion, hurt, And definitely no future and hope. But the invitation of Jesus is to look at what he offers. To trust him. To say yes to him. To yes to his ways. I want to be part of this movement. that began not in 1970, but 2,000 years ago on the cross where Jesus laid his life down and rose again from the dead and empowered 120 people in an upper room to be his hands and his feet. I want to be part of that movement and a lot of you guys want to too, but some of you are in this place where either you are separating or you are assimilating. My encouragement to you is to hear the voice of the Spirit and stop. Come to the part of living in exile as a faithful follower of Jesus. I don't know how or where you land in thinking about this, but I want to finish with this final thought and we'll be done. In fact, I'll have the worship team come on up, and how about we just all stand and respond as we close last image I just want you to think about is this, that we come to the table. And I was thinking about this just in terms of the message. We come to the table with this deep conviction that by grace, each one of us, we have this place of belonging. Secondly, we come with this confession that Jesus is Lord, that he's Lord, he's king. Not Nebuchadnezzar, not Caesar, not you, not your favorite author, not favorite, you know, Podcaster, not anyone that's your faith, you know, singer, whatever it is, or Instagrammer or, or uh, influencer. Jesus is Lord. And then ultimately, we have this deep assurance that because Jesus confronted these powers of darkness and evil and overcame them, we have this hope that we too will overcome. Be faithful, brothers and sisters. Be faithful to Jesus. I absolutely promise you he will be faithful to you. Don't separate and remove yourself. Don't assimilate and compromise. Live as an exile who will not bow your knee to the forces of darkness, but it's like Jesus, whoever comes. I'm going to pray. We're going to respond. as We go to the table. We'll have some people up in the front that will give you the bread and the cup. And we come to be reminded that this is how we do this. We receive life. And then we follow the way of Jesus. So let's tune our hearts. We'll be some people over off to the side. I'll be available as well just to pray for you over by the cross. So it's not in the front, so it's off to the side. You're more than welcome to just come on up to the front. We'd love to pray with you. Let me pray right now and let's respond. And if you got kids in here, again, I preacher went a little bit habit late today, so you might need to, might want to go pick up your kiddos, you can bring them back in here, that's totally fine. Relieve the good workers that are back there. They will absolutely thank you. Uh, you're more than welcome to bring them back in here as well. But let me pray. Let's respond. Jesus, thank you for your great love, and even now we ask you to just open our hearts, turn to you, to turn back to you. God, those areas where maybe we are assimilating, we're becoming just like the culture that hosts us. Help us to repent, to turn from, to turn to the King that gave His life. So we love you. Commit this time in response in your hands, in Jesus' name. Soon.